Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler, and we're here in the Condé Nast Podcast Studios with Laura Redmond and Catherine Legrave and Mark Elwood, all of whom are, well, Mark's a writer and an editor and helps produce our podcast. And Laura and Catherine are, of course, editors and frequent podcast guests. My name's Brad Rickman, and we're going to talk today about etiquette around the world. I told these guys a minute ago that I think it's important that we acknowledge the perspective from which we're coming at this because the world's a big place and everybody has his or her own perspective based on their own culture. And the cultural perspective from which we're coming at this rather obviously is a U.S. perspective, right? Literally most of our readers and our staff, our headquarters are in the U.S. And so that's the perspective from which we come to this. And I also wanted to just note that we are thinking mostly about international travel. So it's you certainly could do a deep dive into regional differences in the U.S., and that would be a lot of fun. But we did a package earlier this month on our brand-new shiny website. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. it looks beautiful. CNTraveler.com, plug. See, set these people up so well. <laughs> um, and we looked at etiquette globally and looked at international travel in particular. So just wanted to note those two things for listeners so you don't, expect something that you're not going to get from this. Within that, and taking that perspective, I was wondering if you guys think, you are all very well-traveled people, are there regions that you think are particularly challenging for an American traveler around the world? I think people can get intimidated by what they think of as um, as far outside their comfort zone as they can conceive, right? Some people that might be Asia. Japan. Japan seemingly has a, a set of rules that you need to abide by when you arrive. And I feel like that's almost where we started when we began thinking about our etiquette coverage. We had a piece on the site from way back. It was five common mistakes travelers make when they visit Japan and has to do with, you know, like, do you remove your shoes when you enter a home or a restaurant? Um, what do you do with your chopsticks? So it doesn't you know, you don't want to stick your chopsticks into a bowl and then all of a sudden you're doing a funereal rite or something, right? Like, yeah. KLG, you lived in Japan for a while. Like, do you just know this stuff backwards and forwards? I like to think I do. It's funny because even when I meet, like, Japanese people in the U.S., I'm like, okay, like, the business card etiquette, that's another thing that's a huge thing, right? right? You, like, what the do you bowing, have to do? the more junior person always bows and stuff like that, and your degree of bowing is like how much respect you have so see i think i think brad's question and i think your answer is right laura i think any culture that we perceive as being having a ritualized very very rigorous format to it is instantly more intimidating for an outsider i think britain can be that in some ways i think japan can be that in a very different way but anywhere that is associated with etiquette you instantly do a double take and think i know i'm going to get this wrong right yeah Singapore, I was thinking, Dubai, yeah. And I, I was even thinking Italy can be like that, although the consequences may not be the same in every case. So there's a lot of different range of consequences and things that can be outcomes of making a mistake. But nonetheless, it does seem like there are places that are more rule-bound. Is that kind of... Or that we at least perceive as being more rule-bound. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. When we talk about consequences, what do we mean? Are we all just worried about embarrassing ourselves and should we get over that? Or is it a, uh, a way of a assimilating to a place that you visit? Is it uh, adopting a culture, not being the ugly American, if we are taking the U.S. perspective? Um, but hang on, I think it's important to remember... You know, we are all outsiders, and if we make a good faith mistake of almost any kind, in etiquette terms, only the meanest local would do anything other than try and help us correct. We have to take a moment, and we're not going through the SATs of etiquette every time we travel. People will cut us some slack if it's clear we don't belong, if we're not fluent in the language, if we are racially different from the people. So we do need to realize that people aren't primed to be horrified by us. I'm guilty of it too. I think we're all a little, a little narcissistic about that. Right. It's a good point, and it's important to remember that what most people are asking for you, as you say, is a good faith effort. And so in the spirit of that, the guide that we put up, I think, is intended to arm people with enough knowledge so that you can make that good faith effort and you're not going to get it right all the time. Right. Okay. So it seems to me that there are subjects that keep coming up again and again and again. And why not start with greetings? Because these vary 
all over the world, and there can be even micro variations that are meaningful. In Air this. kissing, you know, do, do you do two kisses, three kisses? What cheek do you right. start on? Yes. Exactly. Which one do you so you don't start? end up kissing someone on the lips. I, yes. Yeah, that when I first moved to Greece, I was like, okay, cool, handshake, no. Uh, and then I like went the wrong way and almost kissed someone on the mouth, but you know, now I know. So in the U.S. Now he's your husband. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so in the U.S., what we're used to, what the baseline, would you guys say the baseline is a hand Shake. I go for hugs, or a but hug. I know I'm a little no, Americans, Americans are huggier than than, than than they maybe realize. that's like my German background. Like, yeah, I would never is. touch someone. <laughs> no, but again, Catherine, you and I more than the other two are kind of more hybridized, so our instincts are less are less authentic than theirs. I but am ooh, authentic. I love being more authentic. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but but I think America. I think Americans are huggier, and I think that is an etiquette thing that actually an awful lot of cultures will respond very positively mm. to how that embodies American friendliness and Americans are seen as friendly and enthusiastic. There might be cultural more is perhaps in Asia when an older person and you run up to an older <laughs> lady and just hug her. Not okay. And she would be a little mortified. <laughs> right. I think a rule of thumb is always etiquette is less complicated with your peers than with someone who in some way is different True. in age or rank from yeah. you. Right. So it's a stranger and you're in Italy. What do you do? Well, it okay. I think in a... And again, I don't want to speak. I, I will be. I, I will, how about this? More scenario. I am at a cafe. I am. <laughs> Close your eyes. Is it, <laughs> is it raining? It's raining. You just had a cappuccino, so you're feeling okay. And you meet a friend of a friend. It's friendly enough, but you're not. Is the friend there? Yeah. You, you just see how this complicated is, this, this is. This is who you're. Okay, so a friend introduces me to his or her friend. Yes. Okay, in that case. If it were a man, I would probably shake hands. Okay. Um, and Even I'm probably getting this wrong. I'm going to I'm going to confess I'm probably getting this wrong. The answer is two kisses. There is a right answer. Yes, there is two <laughs> kisses, but but and so that's why I'm saying I'm getting this wrong because it's, this all filters still through me as an American, right? And so I would probably start to shake hands if the dude came toward me and it seemed if you in for the and kill. I, I would probably realize because I know that like maybe I'm supposed to do the two kisses thing. And if he came toward me, I would quickly fake my, you know, like like slide my hand yeah. by and do the, do the two kisses. I will confess this, though. I cannot, to this day, I am never sure whether it's left first or right first, even with my in-laws. Okay. Isn't Italy left first? Isn't it? I think it's left first, but anyone yeah. listening, tell us. What, what is the definitive answer? Is it left cheek first? Is there a rule? I wonder, especially in Europe, is there a rule sort of certain regions do the, left well, first, right though first? Though there totally are. There totally are. And that's the thing is that it's so funny that I've been going there for 20 years. And my in, I, every, I say hello to my in-laws every time. And I'm never sure. <laughs> I'm still never sure. Total confession here, whether I'm doing it right or not. You've been judged for what? 20 years. Have they told you? They're so nice. Yeah. They're, they're... One of my favorite tips here, though, is like if you are in this situation, in your situation that you described, is to like follow what the person with you is doing, right? At least that's how I always do it. Like if they're going to kiss and they're friends and I'm a friend by association, okay, I'll kiss right. you. Like just sort of follow what they do when, when you're alone at a restaurant. It's a bit harder if you're meeting someone for the first time to know how to do it. But keep an eye around it. I think that's yeah. a great point. And one of, if in doubt, go second. Yes. Let someone else go first is a great way. If you're in an unfamiliar culture, let someone with you strike the tone or keep your eye on a restaurant. If you're not sure about chopstick etiquette, see what other people are doing because the local people will be intuitively doing it right. So I think that's a brilliant idea, Catherine. If you're nervous that you're going to do the wrong thing, hang back a little. What is the answer? So I would certainly say the second time that I ever ran into somebody, I would We're do really the two kisses. We're really into your male-on-male -male kissing action <laughs> yes. in Italy, are we? Is it an air you know. kiss? Like, what do you do? Do you actually It is not? an air kiss. Air kiss. Yeah. It is an air kiss. I'm or thinking of Greece. Real what, kiss. Do, what are you doing, really? Yeah, like sort of a... I'm not going to do it, but like a touching, you <laughs> know, on the radio. You don't, you, you don't, don't touch cheeks. cheeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheeks. cheeks. Okay. You don't. You Some know, people you don't. will really kiss you in Greece. Well, yeah, it, it's probably like a, my grandma kind of, right? Yeah. What do you mean? I don't know. Like, is Greece two or three? Different generations. Two. 
Two. Okay. And is it left, right, or right, left? Right, left. It's right. That seat, that guy. But I think Italy why. is an outlier. <laughs> Please, listeners, tweet at us. Tell us what you've learned or what you know. And if we've got listeners in Italy, is there a, yeah. is there a rule that Brad and I are forgetting? I've got one of my favorites is in Russia. You do three kisses and a bear hug. <laughs> Which Jeez. seems so non-Russian. And also, <laughs> it would take so long. You'd be, yeah. you'd be like... Wah, Imagine wah, a room hug. full of people. <laughs> exactly. yeah. 18 people to kiss. It's like a math problem. Yeah. 18 people to kiss yeah. three yeah. times plus yes. one hug. How long does that take? Yes. <laughs> Mark, what is it in Britain? In that scenario that Laura just painted, what... If in doubt in Britain, you want to physically interact less, not more. <laughs> So, so you a quick head nod, a quick so wave and then run you, out of the room. To, <laughs> you know, British people have smaller personal spaces than many Americans, but touching them is very intimate. So a handshake is quite friendly. It's not perceived as standoffish. I hug people in Britain because I've lived in America for so long and they find it weird. But I don't get away with it because I sound kind of British. So I'm just a creepy, grabby <laughs> British guy. Whereas if an American hugs a British person, again, there is a sense of, oh, you guys are huggy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to hug you back. I'm going to stand there sort of with my arms by my side as you hug around me. <laughs> but I'm not going to criticize you for it. Do you ever go for the high five? How American are you at this point? I'm, I'm not 15. <laughs> I don't greet people with a it's not the 80s and I'm skateboarding and I need to get someone to hang 10 with How me. How about a low five, no? No! I don't do anything unusual with my hands in public. <laughs> Why would you? Well, you were talking earlier about the big differences between um, American and British greetings etiquette, even though we feel like they might be very similar. I, I think this is, I think it's interesting when, and I'd be curious if the listeners we have who, who are transnational in that way have the same perspective, but we are primed to acknowledge that the etiquette somewhere like Japan as a Caucasian is going to be very unfamiliar and we'll adhere to it and think about it. Speaking English, I think we can get very lazy assuming that every Anglophone country sort of approaches things the same way. Australia, Britain, America, the rules are kind of Canada. the same. Canada, the Caribbean, they're kind of the same. They're not. And it's often you stumble the most when you're not thinking, oh, should I do that? So I would encourage people actually to think, ooh, when you go to Britain, that's probably somewhere you're more likely to make an inadvertent mistake than you will in Japan because you're not really thinking about it. So in Britain, should I keep my arms at my side? <laughs> you should nod at should someone. I, yes. <laughs> formally, raise one eyebrow. Do I lift a pinky when I drink my tea? <laughs> no, what are, what are some common mores? I, I think the biggest differences between America and Britain are... Americans are much more touchy, but have larger personal spaces. So they'll lunge in, hug, and step a long way back. And a British person finds that gap between people while they talk weird, and oh. they will get closer to Close you. Talkers. And the American will step back until they're just doing a dance around the room. British people are on time. In America, a meeting is set for five o'clock, and it's give or take five o'clock. If you are late in Britain, you are late. You're not five minutes late. It's nothing. It's as late as 35 minutes. And that's a really oh, formal. Man. What do you do if you're a Brit in a room full of Italians? You put up yeah, with it that, and think. That's thank, an, there's like, like an with hour. With a German you running the bad, meeting. <laughs> what does that room look like? in America like you look five, ten minutes late. <laughs> I swear, like we Nothing used to have this. We we used to have this Roman time thing when I was living in San Francisco with all of our. We had a bunch of Roman friends, and literally like forty five minutes, fifty minutes, totally expected. I'm sorry, but you see, that's the thing. I think that's when people are are taking advantage of cultural cliches to think, mm, I don't have to be on time because, you know, they'll think, those Italians. <laughs> Whereas if I was 50 minutes late, you'd say, you know, that's not great, actually. I, I need you to be there on time. I would also say, I think, interestingly, British people are a lot crisper than Americans. So the British are, are accused of being very polite. But I think British politeness is aimed at lubricating social stuff. It's there so that you all know how to get it done quickly. Americans tend to be more, there's more pleases and more thank yous and more. So weirdly, Americans, I think, are more polite than British people, but British people are more efficient at it. I've heard that before. When I was in Australia, um, everyone always made fun of how I would say, please and thank you when I was doing something for someone else. Like, I'd say th thank you as I was handing a cashier my money. 
and they should be saying thank you to me. And um, <laughs> thank you so much. And thank it's so always much. like the American <clears throat> smile, right, is from mm-hmm. ear to ear, and they're always like, "What are you smiling about? What is so exciting? That's kind of creepy, you know? Like rein it in a little." Staying on this theme of English-speaking places, Laura, you can maybe speak to this because you lived in Australia for a while. What are the differences if we move in that direction? You know, still English-speaking different from Britain for sure, how does it compare to the United States in particular? The thing that always stands out to me was uh, the use of ta. Like instead of saying thank you, uh, it's a quick colloquial ta. Mm -hmm. It just acknowledges the interaction. So similarly, going a little farther south, not English speaking, but well, no, it is. Um, In Singapore, you add la to the ends of sentences sometimes. it's In the same way? It's tonal, a little more tonal. In Australia, it's more like, ah, ta. Um, got that done. In Singapore, it's like, oh, I can do that, la. Um, it's kind of completing a thought again in the same way. But the la is more um, a nod to the Mandarin or uh, Chinese rhythms of speech. Because in Singapore, there's something called singlish, which is, I also lived in Singapore. It's not random juxtaposition here, but um, Singlish is a hybridization of all the different languages that are often used in Singapore, which is Malay, mm-hmm. uh, Tamil, uh, Filipino, Chinese, and there's hints of it all because it's a really, really multicultural space. So you'll hear hints of those languages at, with words like la at the beginning or end of sentences. Um, they may say can. Instead of saying like, oh, I can do that, they'll just be like, can. Mm-hmm. Um, cannot, you know, they'll just say, it, it's fun. It's um, these hybrid languages. But it catches you off guard when, I think it's often when you go to an English speaking place, when the words are different in the process, you again, you're startled because you're so used to thinking everything will be the same. And you're speaking English, but it's variations on it, right? It's very, so what, it's, is, what do you have to learn to get by? But, well, but I was going to ask too, because we talked about greetings and personal space and this notion of intimacy with strangers, you know, like these contexts. How is that in Australia? Is it more like the United States, kind of laid back and relaxed? Are they huggers? Or is it kind of more formalized? Yeah, they're they're a bit like Americans. I Even think more so? Like, or depends how much you've been drinking, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Seriously. How much you hug, how, how bombastic we all get. Um, yeah. It all gets amplified. And I think, um, I don't want to speak for all Aussies, but they're pretty laid back. There's something called the tall poppy syndrome. You don't want to stand out necessarily. You just kind of want to like mix in down to earth, um, you know, hug, handshake. It's, so don't be loud. Is that what that kind of means? Oh, maybe. But then again, Germans, Australians, Americans were having a good time. I would think of them as the the travelers you notice are the most present when you go somewhere. Especially early in the morning by the pool, just all Germans. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, now. Watch out. (laughs) Fighting tool. Catherine, since we went to Singapore, can we migrate back to Japan for a second Mm -hmm. and talk about the greetings there? Yeah. Because I was surprised to learn exactly, not even when I was there, but through our own coverage, how complicated the bowing can be. Yeah, it's usually by like 15 degrees, right? So if I'm just sort of meeting a friend, it's kind of like a casual 15 degree. If I'm meeting someone that I really honor and respect, you're going to go like from the waist halfway. Um, it is from the waist, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah, think it's from the waist. Then you put your hands behind your back. Of, it's a yeah. slightly different kind of bow, and it's much easier to do than, than the, <laughs> the sort of theatrical. Yeah, no, not a theatrical bow. Sort of, you sort of just stand as straight as you can, and and sort of put your hands behind your back, and do just sort of a slight dip if you're meeting someone. And then for business purposes, obviously, you know, the deeper the bow, the more respect. Do you um, do that in casual settings, like like at a restaurant, uh, a waiter? Yeah. I mean, if you enter a restaurant in Japan, someone will come up to you and they'll do sort of a slight bow when they welcome you. And you you return that bow? Yeah. Okay. Everyone always yells welcome at you, too, when you come in to a restaurant in Japan. It's not really a yell, but I think of it as a Japan. What is it in Japanese? Yirashaimase. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that's right. what they do. Before I went to Japan for the first time, I was very glad someone had told me one crucial thing. I was going for work and I was going to be interviewing a lot of people. A bartender friend of mine said to me, she said, Remember that as you engage in conversation with someone in the West, in order to reassure someone they're not boring you, just as you are all doing now, you're looking at me and you're maintaining eye contact. But in Japan, that's very rude. So someone you're talking to on an ongoing basis will flick their eyes down, which to us 
is the signal that you need to wrap it up. <laughs> and to them is a way of making sure the interaction isn't uncomfortable. So you have to fight every urge to shut up and, and realize, which is not hard for me, but which is you have to know that that eye flicking is a polite gesture. Mm -hmm. That's a really, really good tip. Yeah. That Be happens in the Northwest of the US too. Does it? Right. Did you notice that in Seattle? I, I did. And it's also, Seattle has a, a lot of Asian heritage as well. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised true. if there's yeah. a little bit of trickle down. But yeah. now that you mention it, absolutely. It's hard to, people don't want to keep eye contact mm -hmm. in the Northwest. You were just in Korea, but I know in my experience in China, greeting someone is just sort of a nod, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same lack of physical contact. Um, you're sort of going to nod and sort of maybe do a slight bow, although I don't think they have as many rules as they do in Japan. Um, what was your experience in Korea I think, recently? I think Korea, obviously, Korea has a complicated, not altogether happy history that enmeshes it with Japan recently. And a lot of its social mores, whether they were Japanese style before or were made that way, right. very much follow that Japanese sense of bowing to the order of the person you perceive and watching a chopstick. I mean, all of those things. How have those translated or have they translated through China and, and other influences into other parts of Southeast Asia? Do you guys see some of those things kind of trickling down? Hong Kong, for example, you mentioned Singapore already has some influence from China. I mean, China and Japan are all over Southeast Asia. I mean, following the major wars, they, you know, there's always jokes about the Japanese arriving on bikes across from Malaysia into Singapore and kind of taking over. So there's, there's definitely influences, but I would say, I don't know, Southeast Asia is so complex and diverse and, you know, a Thai perspective and Thai etiquette is different from Indonesian etiquette is different from Singaporean and Malay. So they the thing that really strikes me about that part of the world and that I always struggle to remember the rules on is tipping. Yeah. Another great subject. Well, we were talking do you, about, do you want to come tipping later or do you want to? I, no, no, no. Tipping, tipping. So I was having a conversation with a colleague today. How do you approach tipping? Is it better to have just general tipping rules for hotels, for restaurants that you can try to apply across all cultures? Or do you have to know city by city, country by country? The rule for Americans about tipping is tip way less than you are comfortable doing almost everywhere you go. Right. Because America is the biggest tipping culture. And poor Americans get ripped off a lot of the time because... I've got, I'm not going to turn down a bigger tip, but you every halve, start with mm -hmm. what you want to tip and halve it at least. Probably cut it down a little bit more, especially outside Europe. And in Japan, don't tip anyone because that is like spitting in their face. Yeah. So that's the one, when I think about the one real faux pas you can make, tipping someone in Japan is, is proactively offensive. But... In most cultures. That's so important to note because we we are just acculturated mm -hmm. to 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 see the opposite of mm -hmm. that. You know, again, but it's like you the can eye tip someone in China, but then they're going to want pennies. Yeah. If you pay your taxi driver, he will, as I did last week when I was in Shanghai, he will give you exactly the amount back and down to the pennies or down to the renminbi. So remember, just as an American, don't worry. You don't need to tip as much as you think. Yeah. Yeah. Let's can we do some basics? Like you're at a hotel. Mm -hmm. Who do you tip? Let's start with the valet. If you park, you give a couple bucks. Is that fair? How do we even begin to set targets for this? Yeah, it is challenging. I think my general practice varies from place to place, as I think most okay. people's does. So place Europe, being okay, country or continent. Yeah, in Europe, where I'm probably most frequent other than the US. Um I will generally shoot for about 10%. And that feels about right. You have to remember, and just for those who think that that's just a matter of being, you know, cheap, um, waiters, at least in Italy, and I don't, I think it's similar in Spain and France, and probably other parts of Europe as well. Being a waiter is a profession. It's a job. It's like a union job. You get a salary. You don't get hourly wages. You get health care through the state. And so a lot of the things that service industry professionals in the United States depend on tips for That's a great point. are That's actually a taken care of by other parts of the culture or the government or, or um, the business in Europe. 
And so you really don't need to feel guilty about that because their perspective is completely different from what we're used to, where waiters and, and service industry professionals are often paid just pennies with the assumption on the part of management that tips will make up for that. So generally, I'll go for around 10%. It was interesting when I was in Cartagena recently, because the other thing that comes into play with this for me is if you are in a place, whether you're staying at a place or whether the specific place like the hotel that you're in or the region that you're in is accustomed to a lot of American tourists, you that's don't, point. you know, you don't understand how that's changed the norms. Like Cuba. Yeah. And so for me, that's a variable that's always kind of playing in my head. And I did feel like in Cartagena, there was a guy in the Airbnb that we stayed at who was sort of like, almost like a concierge for this apartment complex that we were staying in, really just more like doorman kind of guy. And he helped us carry some bags up to the apartment. And I laid what was a modest tip on him because I didn't have like a ton. And I couldn't tell whether I was getting vibed or not with like, you know, not enough, needed some more coinage there. You like, weren't. And I, it's, you weren't. That is, that is your yeah, Americanness you coming in. Divide it by two. That's well, what you're saying, right? I mean, the vibe. I'm, I'm saying you are programmed to feel uncomfortable. Yes, tipping less. Yes, and that's what you were feeling. Yes, and, and yes, he particular. might have been. He might have been thinking, I, "I'm used to Americans, kind of, you know, not not Laying adjusting." Yeah. And th- you're not doing anything wrong, actually. I th- I remember a GM once said to me, "Remember, you do not want to imbalance the local economy, especially mm. in emerging cultures. If you're in China and you tip." three or four bucks, that's plenty, that's very generous, and it will buy a lot of things. If you start tipping too much, it imbalances the way the wages are planned, and then you become that weird kind of thoughtless cash flasher, which is gross in a different way. So my recommendation, you know, to bring it back to practicality, if Mm -hmm. you're traveling around Europe, generally speaking, I would go for around 10% and feel just fine about it. What would you guys suggest for other... Yeah, do you agree with that? parts of the world. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's it's like also learning how much to tip and also learning how to tip is an important thing. Like, I feel like I sat next to, this is sort of flipped, but I sat next to a German guy at a restaurant in New York the other day. And to the waitress, he said, okay, 47 when he gave her the bill. And she kind of looked at it because it was $40. And she said, no, it's 40. And he said, no, 47. Because in Germany, you just say the total of what you want. And then right. they subtract it. And you do that in several countries. And it was un- uncomfortable for me, the poor man. <laughs> I'm sure we've all been there in other countries. But it's also, to me, like learning how to do it. Does that well, make and, sense? And, no, it does make sense. And, and now that you point that out, it reminds me that in a lot of places like that, credit cards are different. Yeah. They operate differently mm-hmm. than here. And so what will happen is somebody will come to your table, and this happens in Central and South America as well, with a machine and there is no like line for the tip yeah. on the receipt. And so the reason why they have to do that is because they're just punching they a have number to manually in and that's it, whatever right. the number is. So he's used to a context in which you tell the person who's typing that number in what the final number needs to be because there is no other opportunity to do it. Yeah. Whereas here we have that little line. So that's a great point. I would also say, I think it's important to remember hierarchies. We were talking about hierarchies in Japan, for example. I was told one of the times when I went to India was you don't tip a white-collar guide, a middle-class Indian. That's insulting. You tip the lower-ranking workers who are seen as needing a little bit of extra mancha, a little bit of extra. I think that's a good thing to remember. I think in some cultures, and this is a horrible thing to acknowledge, it is more comfortable if you are traveling with men in your group to let the men handle the tipping, especially of men. There might be uncomfortable moments as female travelers. And again, I don't know if you want to break through that barrier or you don't want the hassle of being the pioneer. You could argue both of those, I mean, but I it, think there's... Sometimes you're just by yourself, right? Exactly. So there's no, but it... not a whole lot. But in those scenarios, is there a subtle way? Like you're talking about how to give. I think that's a great point. When I'm in hotels, for some reason, I always leave a thank you note. <laughs> I'm American. You are, you are just American. the most polite person. <laughs> or I... even just like a little on the notepad that they leave and yeah. on the desk, like, thanks, next to the tip the tip uh-huh. otherwise I, it looks like i just left change on my dresser yeah. but to your question about like how much do we tip porters or concierges i mean i kind of have i i do that no matter where i am restaurants are different but 
as for how to tip, I actually, you know, if you're uncomfortable with handing money directly to someone, you can put it in an envelope, you can leave mm-hmm. it in the room, you can hand it to them in an envelope, which is generally usually what I try and do. And I would also, I would really encourage people to remember, please tip in the local currency. Yeah, in India absolutely. and China, for example, because of the way monetary policy is run, exchanging dollar, a regular person walking into a bank saying, I got 50 bucks to change into <laughs> local currency, will not be straightforward for them, which sounds crazy to us. But please, I always think if at the end of the trip, we've all got stuff at the end of the trip, if you're not going to give it to the airline's charity program on board, you can leave it for your room attendant. You can... Local currency, local currency, local currency. Well, I was going to, yeah, I was going to say you should never assume that you can travel around and spend dollars, dollars, dollars. No, but I think often people will either run out of money at the end of the trip and think, I'll just leave a 10. I'll leave leave a 10. And that may not be helpful. And I also think sometimes we learned historically, oh, dollars are preferable because they're powerful on the black market or that they're one of the currencies people want. And actually, I think these days it has become in almost any destination, you got to leave it in the local currency. Another conversation for another time, probably in the future. What do you do when Bitcoin? Do you tip in Bitcoin? (laughs) Oh, my God. Seriously. I want to go nowhere near with Podcast 2020. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin tipping. I mean, that that <laughs> at that point you have to be you have to have saturation of something like Venmo or the Cash App or like, you know, electronic transfer of funds which is so spotty like everywhere that you go. Really, you cannot even rely on credit cards everywhere that you, you can't even rely on credit cards in Brooklyn for God's sake. Like, <laughs> but true. I would but I would also I think it's interesting. I would encourage as American travelers we are, or as travelers based in America going overseas, we are more likely in the developed world to encounter more highly developed technology than the one we are used to using. Because technology rolls out in America late because we're big. Giant country, lots of people, giant geography. Chip and pin, which is the idea of putting your card into a machine and then typing in a pin, has been ubiquitous in Europe for 10 years. We only just got chip and signature, which isn't that much more secure than swipe and signature. Again, as American travelers or travelers from America, we're going to encounter more technology, probably in an exciting way. So we're, we don't have to worry about being too advanced. Yeah. So one of these subjects, there is so much etiquette around, is eating. So I thought it would be useful for us to talk a little bit about different kinds of food etiquette around the world. Again, this is the kind of thing where, and I, I can't think of a specific example of the extreme end of this, but the consequences can vary from place to place, right? And I think they can range from, you know, mild embarrassment and FOMO, like I did the wrong thing, I missed out, all the way to, you know, offending somebody, causing serious offense to someone. So again, if we could go back and talk about maybe some of the notions around ordering, in different parts of the world. You know, I'll throw out the example of of Italy, where another one of these countries, as I was saying earlier, I feel like it may not be quite as structured as Japan, but it's actually more structured than you think it is. And there are just some things that you do do, and non si fa, and si fa, right? And- What did you just say? Uh, what, you what? just don't, it is not done. It is not right? done. Like non si fa, you don't do that. Does that come it up a lot? Done. Are you getting scolded a lot in Italy? <laughs> No, not unless you sitting, have an Italian spouse. Slapping his hand. If you have an Italian spouse, yes, you're getting scolded a lot. It's but coming that's up not a when lot. you're traveling. That's just at home. That's all the time, everywhere. That's our next podcast. But for example, for example, Mark, you're, you're very familiar with Italy. Yes. What are the hours for a cappuccino? If you order a cappuccino after breakfast, people will think, me, you don't know what you're doing. They'll make you one, but they'll make you one with that knowledge that me. All right, why? Why? Because cappuccino is a breakfast drink. Why? Because it has- it's very sweet and it has a lot of, like, again, it's these delicious. are complex. Is it I love milk? That, I love that these are windows into culture, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because for Italians, sweet things are for breakfast. They're actually not for dessert. Unless it's gelato, right? So if you look at Italian cakes and pies and things like that, they're actually not that sweet. They don't prefer... They think American desserts are insanely sweet, sweet, right? And so if you are ordering coffee in Italy, you order a cappuccino at breakfast 
or you can have your espresso. That's fine too if that's your thing. But after breakfast time, which ends at ten, eleven, whatever, you, you can have a lion. It's not like you don't have to get up early to get your cafe. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but it, whatever is your breakfast, right? Is and you can be the <laughs> the eccentric and have your breakfast at two p.m. That's fine. Yeah. But you're gonna be that guy. Um, if it's after that, you either take it straight or you get a macchiato, right? Like mm-hmm. basically, if you want milk. It's it's a macchiato. Mm-hmm. That's all you're doing. But you shouldn't want milk because it's not breakfast time. And that yeah. would be, I think there'd be that amazing non-plusness from Italians where it would be like non si fa, but, but you don't Oh my God, I was, I was so the brat that had like the 4 p.m. cappuccino because it was tea time in Italy. I don't know. What do you do? What if you just want a coffee? Oh, you need a coffee twice a day. Macchiato, that's what I'm saying. Co- like just a, a, a cafe, which is just an espresso or a macchiato if you want just a dab of hot milk. It's like just a little dab. My favorite, my favorite. What if I'm calcium deficient? I get, no, I get it. I get it. You, these okay. scenarios so, you're building. Yeah. Starbucks. So Starbucks is coming to Italy though, right? What will that do to coffee culture? Oh. When, when, when Starbucks bought the British company, the Seattle Coffee Company, that an American had started and used it as their bulwark into Europe, the brilliant woman who was in charge of that and spearheaded Starbucks expansion into Europe said, Starbucks knows there are two countries in Europe that it will not dominate. It is possible for it to enter but not dominate. Any guesses? Any guesses? Italy. Yeah. Because coffee's cheap. So there's a premium price on Starbucks. And Austria, because coffee is a break from the day. Agreed. Not something you do while walking around. And young people will do it, but Starbucks is fully aware that in Austria and Italy, it will be a footnote. Mm -hmm. I would have said Sweden. Oh, with the fika. Yeah, with the fika. I remember her talking about those two. And in, no, in, no, in Australia, it. Starbucks is owned by 7-Eleven, and <laughs> it had to pull back because they don't drink that kind of coffee. Because they're getting yeah. their flat whites. Yeah. yeah. It, so what are the rules in Austria? Well, I was going to say it's, it feels like the opposite of Italy. If you're going to have a coffee, you have it day, night. I had more mm-hmm. coffees at night than I did in the morning. In, with in milk? In Vienna. Kind of however you want it. It felt sweet. I, I did the um, soccer tour. Yet. I don't know if I said that right. How do, how do I say it? You said it right. Did I it? Like, asked the resident German. Yeah. Don't yeah. look at me. Did I say that right, Kate? Yeah. All right. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was a slightly <laughs> grudging. Yeah, it'll do. <laughs> I think it was a hotel in Imperial. I can't remember, but it's right next to the uh, Opera House. And it's famous. It's where the tort was created. And you have like a really rich... Uh, espresso drink and a mm-hmm. chocolate torque and it's so amazing and I had it at 10 p.m. and that's just how I rolled every day in Vienna. You see, I think it's funny that in Austria beer is classified as a foodstuff so you can have it as a snack. So your morning that snack seems utterly reasonable to is me. a I know, beer. Me too. And it, and you, you That's I, 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 I sat around exactly in Teutonic countries and I love the idea that because beer has calories it's a snack. So at ten thirty, having a beer is not seen as whoa. Let's let's <laughs> let's we should chat. Day drinking. It's seen as you were a bit hungry, so you had liquid nourishment. I loved that. Yeah, I that was very. That's genius. Um, in England, what is the coffee culture? For example, well, when I was growing up, coffee wasn't really a, a, an English yeah, thing. Yeah, is there one? I don't think. I think now there. I think there are plenty of artisanal coffee shops, but I don't think British people do not have a precious heritage with coffee, so there's no etiquette around it. There is etiquette around, around tea. tea. Do you warm the pot? Do you put the milk in first? Okay, do you put the- can you give me a rundown of classic tea etiquette? What is high tea? I don't understand what is high tea versus just tea. <laughs> <laughs> so it's confusing because it's the reverse of what you'd think. High tea is the casual one, and oh no! <laughs> high tea will often have, or traditionally, had savory things in it. So it was more like a light supper with tea. Whereas afternoon tea or tea is what you're picturing when you think I go to London and I book a table at the Ritz and have a giant tower of sandwiches. So high tea is more like you'd get a pasty or something warmer and more savory but you're drinking tea with it rather than a beer. Tea is scones and clotted cream and, you know. And yes, there's the eternal question. Do you put clotted cream on first or jam? <laughs> I'm, oh. a, I'm a cream first jam person. I'm, please listen to anyone out it there. It looks prettier. Ta- 
I think it photographs better. Yeah. That's the point. Sure. That is critical. <laughs> <laughs> I think Instagram trumps all but local I, no, but etiquette. I, I'd be curious if anyone can answer. I'm not I'm not sure where the tradition or the, the quandary comes from about which order, because it is a historic one. In terms of making tea, I was always taught, of course, you warm the pot, because if the pot's not warm, you need a, a warm receptacle for the tea leaves. Then you would put them in. Never use tea bags, of course, because tea bags are like, you know, devils. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then we put hot water into the tea, let it sit. You've obviously got your strainer. And yes, you do put milk in. And I think for Americans, it's very strange to think about tea with milk. Yeah. Right. Because, because you it, think of a sweet tea, an iced tea, you don't put milk in that. That's like a, well, I, don't, I can't even just define that. Milk it tea befuddles my brain. What, what order would you guys put? Would you put the milk in first or the tea first? Tea. No milk. Sorry, Grandma. My grandma's Scottish. She'd be mad. <laughs> Laura is refusing to answer your question. Oh, yeah. um, I would put the wait. Okay, milk first in in the cup. You've got. A, I'm Laura now. We've right lost now. him. You've got a cup in front of you. Oh, do you put the milk in and then add tea, or do you put the tea in and add milk? Can I just ask an Italian question? Mm-hmm. Am I warming the milk? No. Oh, dear. Um, I'm sold on the warm milk thing. Okay, I would put in the tea first, and then I would add the milk. So Laura is correct. My Scottish grandmother always taught me milk first, then the tea. So then it's warmed up as opposed to cooling down the tea. Yeah. But is the vessel into which you put the milk warm? No, because it's a cup. Okay, here... You can't have everything be a bit Italian. Well, no, but what I was going to say is when you said... The world is not Italian. Yeah, I got it, I got it. Uh, And thank God for that, right? (laughs) Um, Love them, but it's nice that they have their little zone and we can all visit it. Um, But I would say when you said that you warm the pot... Mm-hmm. That was reminiscent to me of the idea that you always warm the glass into which you're going to pour the espresso. And I just, it felt like the sense of like. No, you warm the pot so that um, the tea brews properly. It's all to do with the tea. And remember, you know, it's one scoop per person into the pot and then one for the pot. Okay. So for the four of us, if we were making a pot of tea, five if we included scoops. Brett, five <laughs> scoops plus one for the pot. Okay. All right. That's genius. More math. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) there is a lot of math here. Okay, can we talk a little bit about utensils and things that you should use to eat? And I'm going to confess again here, even in our own United States, I have no idea what the small fork is for. (laughs) Anybody know what the small fork is for? Salad, right? Oysters. It depends how depends how small it is. And the true the, the babies, how small? Seriously, what are we talking about? No, there's a large fork and a small fork. Large fork is for your main. Is right? the knife closer Mark's to the plate or the spoon closer? Knife is closer. Spoon. spoon. No, spoon is... Wait, yeah. it goes... You set from <laughs> the outside. Yeah. Wait, no, left <laughs> to right. You set from the outside. Little, yeah, 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 little yeah. fork, outside big in. fork, plate, knife, spoon. Mm, spoon. Spoon, knife? Yeah. Mm. You set from the outside in. So you begin your courses, your eight-course meal, there would be eight utensils either side, and you would commence at the outside moving towards the plate. So the final utensils next to the plate are for whatever your final course will be. Yeah, then it wouldn't be... S- for the dessert, would be dessert. You wouldn't do well, nursery. You've got a spoon Who up above the plate with that coffee. That's nursery setting. You don't put a spoon above. Nursery that's nursery setting. setting. No, it's multiple course setting. I think he just insulted you. No, 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 no. <laughs> we don't do nursery setting. We're not children. I don't know children. what that means. You put the spoon and fork above your plate? No, you put that's... just a spoon above your plate. It's still nursery Sometimes setting. Sometimes no. for coffee and dessert. No, not acceptable. I have, see- I have seen that Yeah, as well. for multi-course. I will, I will validate. And you know where I've seen it. In a Martha Stewart book that I actually saved because it explained all of these things in diagrams. I know. I feel like we get, we're going to get hate mail just for this portion but, but, but of the podcast. But observation? What we're talking about is etiquette around the world, and I'm sure Martha Stewart, an American etiquette expert, would say that was okay in Britain. That's nursery setting, and if you're old but, enough by to the way, drink, babies have settings in Britain. My kid can barely hold a <laughs> spoon. She's like bangs on a tray, like it's a drum. It's not. Chops. Setting yes. chopsticks. Chopsticks. Oh, yeah. chopsticks. What do you do? How do you offend people the most with chopsticks? Uh, so I think what all of us do when we get Japanese takeout—not all of us, a lot of us—is you know take those wooden chopsticks and rub them together. Do not what? do this, right? Wait a to remove okay, the splinters. Trying to have start you ever a fire? <laughs> no, have you ever seen? Have you ever seen people do this? 
Yeah, everyone. Yeah, he goes, our engineer just raised his hand and said, I do. Exactly. If you do this in Japan, it's so rude. It's implying that a place is cheap. They cannot afford good chopsticks, Whereas right? Whereas if you ordered it in New York, the place is cheap and they can't afford it. <laughs> exactly. Not good chopsticks. Uh, what That's else for one. chopsticks? How do you put them down? You're done eating. What do you do? Yeah. Um, so you put them on you the right little... right to the end. I still want to know what else is how there? does one hold? Well, pa- um, oh, you're going to try to describe how to hold yes. chopsticks on the radio? No, we're not a radio topic. I need a pair of chopsticks. I always make like a ring finger to thumb. Mm-hmm. And then the two on top. I don't know what my two see? fingers are called. The ring finger to thumb. I laid down the challenge, and she met the challenge. The ring finger to thumb and then is immobile, and the other one moves on top of it. Exactly. So actually, your chopsticks only one chopstick moves, and it is your index finger which steers it to move, and that's how you can pick up almost anything. I actually think, and this is the. I'm going to pretend this is the reason why I asked this question because I think that is the key that unlocks the use of chopsticks for. Westerners for U.S. people who are not used to chopsticks. But I would also encourage people in Korea, for example, they use, they're the only people to use metal chopsticks. They don't use wooden chopsticks. So it's actually, they're much cleaner, Mm. but food doesn't stick as easily to them. So you need a spoon. And in Korea, using a spoon is not, you've given up, you can't use chopsticks. It's, a lot of the food is soupy. Mm. Uh, Rice will not stick to metal chopsticks. Isn't that ramen culture too, though? When yeah. using you'll get a spoon, spoon and sure. left and yeah, chopsticks and right. And but that is funny about the chopsticks. Like, you know, Japan, you'll get a lot of bamboo chopsticks. Korea, we're talking about metal. China, you'll get a lot of plastics, larger chopsticks. Um, anyway, but the etiquette is mostly the same, right? What Laura was talking about earlier, don't stick your chopsticks in a bowl sort of face down. Don't pass food with your chopsticks um, because that's considered unclean. If I'm trying to give Laura something to eat, I wouldn't just pass it to her. Um, If she wanted something from my plate or I gave it to her, I would, in Japan at least, okay, I would turn my chopsticks around and use the wider end because that hasn't touched my mouth, right? So that's clean. Um, If you do that in Japan where you're like passing food, it's like double dipping. It's considered rude. So say, you know, you're sitting next oh to Oh boy, your here we go. <laughs> okay, Laura. <laughs> okay. Picture it. Picture it. She's got a scenario for yeah. you. Sitting oh next boy. to my husband. I want something off his plate. I'm in a Japanese restaurant in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. If I take my chopstick, I don't use the wide end. Yeah, you do use the wide end. I know, end. but what if I don't, is that the most offensive thing ever? I mean, it's rude. It's not It's not like going, it's, it's rude, right? It's okay. not like the other ones where it's reminiscent of a, a Japanese funeral, where you're sort of what moving is the bones that, in the urn. Okay, uh, what is the one that is like a Japanese funeral? Uh, Very the passing the food from chopstick to chopstick. If I'm holding up my chopsticks and I say to Laura, hey, have this piece of fish, and she takes her chopsticks, and we're passing sort of in the that air. It also seem very intricate. That's like a very <laughs> Most people maneuver. I feel like I would stand up and clap Olympia. if you actually <laughs> accomplished it. But it, is, but it is also sticking the chopsticks when you finish straight up. Yeah. Straight up. That that's, looks like incense in a pot. Yeah. A it feels fire. like a bro move. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the king of my ramen. So set your chopsticks. There will always, anywhere you go in Japan, there will be a little sort of dish and just put your chopsticks there. If you're done eating, if you're taking a break, put them there. What do you do if... That's our resident... Yes. Yes. Oh, boy. Resident Japan expert. Since I'm heading to Japan again in 10 days. The... Say you are not adept with chopsticks and it is painful to eat using them. Mm-hmm. Can you, as a foreigner in cultures that where chopsticks predominate, ask for other utensils without being seen as completely ridiculous? I think so. I think it depends on what you're eating. I think if you're eating sushi, I mean, a lot, a lot of sushi is acceptable to eat with your hands, mm-hmm. right? So that's something to note. If you're uncomfortable with chopsticks, you can eat with your hands most pieces of sushi, and that's not considered rude. Some you're actually supposed to eat with your hands. Um, if you're eating ramen and you want to twirl the... <laughs> this is hard for me to picture. Um... I don't think anyone will mind. You might get a side look, but again, most ramen places you're going are sort of you're slurping in and your, out. You're yeah. slurping, right? It's fast food. Yeah. But I will also say, I think you need to be prepared as a traveler that some places may not be able to provide you with a fork. Absolutely. Like they just might not have yeah, it. Yeah, fair point. And so you should figure out what you're going to do. But I just mean, I think I think people can very gamely soldier on. And if they're not super adroit with chopsticks, after a week in a culture where you just think, I just want to eat easily and dinner not to take two hours, I feel for people who are like, I'm giving it a well, go. But. but I think it's important anywhere you go in Japan, anybody who's ever been to Japan, I think most of us here, 
we've talked about the level of attentiveness, right? If you are struggling and this is a place that can offer you something else, they will yeah. quietly bring it to you more often than not. Yeah. So even if Mark says you reach the end of your trip and you're like, I'm so tired of struggling with these things, make an effort initially even if you know in the back That's of your mind point. that you're going to try and sort of subtly ask for a fork, make an effort and then ask because it's it's more polite that way. Yeah. And if you think you're going to struggle, don't order rice. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Although no, somebody rice made with a, chopsticks is really manically hard. hard. <laughs> but I but so, but somebody made a point to me at some point many years ago that one of the secrets to that is you can actually pick up the bowl in some context and sort of like, you know, move Shovel it closer it to your face, face. Sure. Yeah. bring it closer to your face mm-hmm. and that can make it easier so that you're, you have yeah, less It's almost distance. like a paddle that you're yeah, just like yeah, moving food yeah. on. Yeah. This goes back to the rule of like greeting people, right? In Japan, if you, if you go to a restaurant, you would see that, that people are very active with their bowls, picking it up, bringing it closer to their face. So sort of, if you have any hesitation around about that and want to know, how can I make this easier for myself? Take a cue, look around, see what other see, people are doing. But I think you, you made this point earlier, and I think it's so vital. If you are observant, if you take five minutes just to observe, you'll probably work out how you need to be just by being a little observant. And if you're caught on the hop, just pause back look around are other people picking up their bowls oh okay it's probably okay and that in almost any scenario that will save you from major major faux pas i think i also think in japan your earlier point mark people are going to forgive you for a lot more than you think i mean you sort of get a pass on all kinds of you know faux pas um, because you're you know clearly not from there yes well one last faux pas if I may. Yeah. Is this a scenario? I'm scenario. For a... Okay. You're in an Indian restaurant in India. People are eating with their hands. Which hand should you not use? I know. but I know. Yeah. Right. Well, Do you it's know, not Brett? like listeners are calling in with their <laughs> answers. I think we what can, we mean is. We like, can tell got them. Rhonda on Brad, line one. What, what, what is this you... a question for me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Quiz right. time. I'm going to go with Left. That's correct. That's correct. Good job. Ding, 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 Do ding. Do you want to explain to our listeners why that is the case? Delicately put, that is typically the hand that you would use if you were cleaning up after yourself. In one, the loo. One In hand is loo. for the kitchen and one hand's for the bathroom. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Okay, I wanted to ask one other thing. Have you guys ever been in a scenario where you did not want to eat something and felt like you needed to, out of etiquette, politeness, la- not wanting to cause offense. All the time. <laughs> if you can't eat seafood in Singapore, you're screwed. And I, you do not eat seafood? I do not eat seafood. Okay. Um, <laughs> How did you navigate Tough that? few years. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Laura's like, that's Mars bars. Need to fucking move. <laughs> How did you? Curry puffs for life. Um, I confronted my host and said, what don't you eat? And she said, cheese. And I said, okay, this is my cheese. So you know what? No, sometimes I try to just take a bite of whatever it is in all seriousness. And if there's an allergy, there's only so much you can do. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, you try to show politeness. You have a small bite and then you kind of Have you ever pretended on. to have an allergy when you actually did? Absolutely. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fake allergies. Yeah. Well, okay. do you know how hard it is to explain you just don't like eating seafood? No, because yeah. I'll eat anything you put right. in front of me. So. Okay, cheese. I mean, that's not my thing, but if you're just like, oh, no, I don't eat cheddar. Come on. See, I was, I was, when I was in Chengdu recently, I had my first sea cucumber, and I didn't mm. know that sea cucumber was essentially a piece of tire that was <laughs> dropped to the bottom of the ocean and allowed to grow for a while and then was cooked to be even more tire-like it's... in a soup. And I know it's a delicacy, and it's also something that Chinese cuisine is about texture as much as taste, and it has no taste and a weird texture to a Westerner. So what I did was I <laughs> I took a bite because I wanted to try it and find out if I would like it, and then I chopped it up into bits so that it was less obvious how much of the sea cucumber I'd eaten. Did you move it across the plate? To I had disperse? a big. I, had I a, have totally done that. <laughs> I hit it. I hit it. I had a soup. It was in a sort of soupy broth, and I realized I couldn't have any of the broth if I wasn't going to eat the sea cucumber. So I had a little bit of the broth to try that. Chopped up the sea cucumber and let it sort of lurk at the bottom of the you broth. You must be really good with chopsticks. <laughs> yeah. No, like, I actually chopped up the they sea had, cucumber. They had given me. They had, <laughs> He's like, you picture him like. <laughs> 
<laughs> they had given me a knife and fork, which I hadn't used. Oh. But I did step in. <laughs> and then when the waitress came back, I was able to say, oh, you know, mm, yum. And, and I think that's a great way, because you can't really explain, I would always defer to fudging it a bit. Yeah. Because it's right. probably the easiest face saver for everybody. Well, in some cultures, it's okay to leave a bit of food behind, and in some, you have to clean your plate, right? Examples? So, China, please leave some food behind, otherwise that's offensive. Mm -hmm. Japan, clean your plate. Great. I love that. Is it... I didn't didn't know this about China. If you leave food behind, that's a gesture of... I enjoyed the meal. Yeah. Yeah. you, You didn't get... Remember, there are some cultures that if you don't leave food behind, they didn't provide enough. There has yeah. to be a surfeit, yeah. or they were bad hosts. This is an, th- this I think a lot of the Middle East is like that. From what I understand, I'm curious if any listeners would draw that parallel. But um. no, but I love that. I love that you brought that up because it's a reminder that we have to remember that a lot of these protocols arise from history and e- economies, and the fact that people might have been impoverished for periods of time or whatever, and you know the sharing of food was uh, something that might have been difficult for people and still is difficult for people in many places. I I was recently in Austin and I heard this story that I'll sort of repeat that's along these lines that Andrew Zimmer uh, told, um, the guy who's the host of, you know, Weird Foods or whatever the show is. Kind of an amazing story where he was traveling in Vietnam and they were doing a shoot there and he was staying with a family on these boats that were it was it's that sort of boat houseboat people where they they sort of travel with the currents and the man who was the host was a fisherman and so he was literally giving of his product and they were very very poor and so the hosts were cooking dinner and they could see like the entire crew could see andrew could see that there was human feces in the water that they were using to clean the fish and he was going to, you know, be eating the fish on camera. And the entire crew is sort of saying, like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Wow. But he realized that, you know, and he made this point about part of what your job is, is to allow people the dignity of generosity, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Wow. That's it's the same yeah. thing. And so his position was... I can't say no to this. I have to eat this. Because if I say no, that's the gravest insult that I can possibly give. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously like way further on the continuum of extremity than what you're talking about, Laura, where you need to leave a little food behind because, but it comes from the same place in that this was all these people have is that the food that they're giving him, it's their their yeah. capital, right? And so for them to offer this, it imparts enormous dignity on them and says something about their ability to feed a guest. And for him to say no would be to throw that right back at them. So he didn't, and he was fine, which is, I guess, the moral of the story. No, that's a good parting message. Like, when in doubt, just say yes. Be generous. Be generous. Mm-hmm. Okay, so don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us at cntraveler.com. I want to put in plug in, as I usually do, for the Women Who Travel podcast, which has started up with a new season. Two episodes have rolled out last week and this week. So you need to subscribe to that. If you haven't heard season one, you need to go hear that. But you also need to get in on season two, which is even bigger and better than ever. I was actually with uh, Meredith and Lale when they recorded in Austin. That was a terrific show. That's the show that came out this Monday about a bunch of women who are working on saving the oceans, not to put it you know, too gently. And just a terrific group of people and a great discussion that they had. So check that out. We are on Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube. We are at CN Traveler on Instagram and Twitter. Please do tweet at us, as Mark said uh, throughout the show. He's so good about this. But do let us know what your own experiences of these things are. We've all been in these situations where we haven't known quite what to do. Um, We've all been in situations where we've had to coach other people on what to do. So let us know what your tips are for dealing with these things. And I didn't particularly like to know if you've got strategies for what to do when you really don't know what to do. 
How do you get yourself through those situations? What are your tactics? Mark, how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to do so? You can get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Mark J. Elwood. And I want to thank Diamond Doom and Wine Golf Girl, who both gave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Did they? So that was very nice. And we do encourage you, please do review us. Uh, give us as much feedback, hopefully lots of five-stars, but the more reviews you get, the easier it is for people to we find us. We pay attention. We do pay attention. We stop saying like. Uh, you should just check. Should we? Sure. We dialed down the... But I want to say thank you to Diamond Doom and Wine Golf Girl because we love hearing that you love this that we love doing. Oh, sorry, right. I'm on Twitter at KJ LaGrave. Laura? I'm at Laura underscore Redman on Instagram and at Danon825 on Twitter. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Mind your manners. 